Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the Transformative Principal podcast and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Today, we have an expert from the field of ethics, I guess I could say. I'll go with that. <laughs> Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Good morning, Jethro. Good morning. Well, today, uh, we actually have some listener feedback, and we need to address something that we mentioned on the last show. So before we get to our distinguished guests, I want to talk about what our listener, Laura, wrote in and asked about. And she was curious about the legal ramifications of two minors sexting consensually. And that's what our topic was last week on our live show. And she was uh, concerned that um, if the police are notified in a sexting situation from a school or something like that, uh, what does law enforcement do and how often do kids go to juvenile detention. So, Fred, any thoughts on that? Sure. I I think that the second part is easy enough to answer, that it's relatively uncommon for kids, particularly in a consensual situation, to uh, be prosecuted or wind up in juvenile detention or anything like that. Um, the the relationship piece, remember we talked a lot about about how that plays into all of this. That's the key element here. And if a school administrator like yourself, for instance, felt that there was coercion involved, you would be much more likely to get a school resource officer or law enforcement involved. If it's two kids who are, you know, hopefully in a positive stage of their relationship and they're doing this consensually, then that presents a great learning opportunity about what the potential risks are. To be clear, it is still contraband and technically it is still evidence of a crime. But in my experience, most of the adults in a situation like that would try to deal with it uh, non-judicially, I think is the best way to put it. Yeah. And I think that's really the point here. It's as school leaders and school personnel, we're not trying to get kids in trouble with the law, <clears throat> but what we do want to do is make sure that they have the support they need. They know when something is wrong. And sometimes that does require involving law enforcement so they can see the seriousness of it. Um, and in my experience with most school resource officers or even police uh, who respond to school situations, they are looking to help in the learning process as well. So that's a really important thing. Um, so hopefully that makes some sense. And just uh, a little shout out that she gave us at the end. She said, I'm glad you guys are getting this stuff out in the open because I think it's a tough situation. I feel like I'm going to do my best to talk to my kids early about it. But the idea of finding something as a parent and the legal ramifications for me and my kids, frankly, scare me. And that, you know, we're all, I think, experiencing something to that effect who have kids that, you know, a small bad choice can make a huge difference in their future lives. And we want to do whatever we can to uh, to help them out. So 
with that, Fred, let's have you introduce our, our awesome guest today. I will certainly do that. And let me toss out one other thing um, just before I do that, that um, this kind of feedback is incredibly helpful to us. I certainly hope anyone else who's listening to any of our podcasts will feel free to write to us, get in touch. We're happy to answer any questions on an ongoing basis. So with that being said, it is my privilege and my honor to introduce my good friend and colleague, uh, Troy, Dr. Troy Hutchings who is a researcher, writer, and lecturer in the areas of professional ethics, educator misconduct, and the frameworks for an ethical and legal teaching practice. He uh, presents to state and national policy and practitioner groups across the United States and Canada. Uh, this is a person with many frequent flyer miles to his credit, <laughs> having given hundreds of lectures across the country. Uh, he also provides expert witness testimony in judicial hearings, collaborates on policy initiatives, and has been, and this is the reason he's here today, the subject matter expert on a variety of national projects dealing with educator ethics, including the Model Code of Ethics for Educators and the National Council for the Advancement of Educator Ethics. He has a record of full-time teaching, research, and administrative responsibilities at the university level spanning 15 years. And he also served as a high school teacher, administrator, and coach in public and private schooling environments for another 16 years. So he has been there and done that. So his contributors to the field, his contributions to the field of professional practices were recognized nationally when he received the 2009 annual Doug Bates Award and gave the associated lecture. He was also named the 2016 Anna Funk Lockie Annual Endowed Lecturer joining international educational education notables, including Sir Ken Robinson, Theodore Sizer, Albert Shanker, Jonathan Cazell, Diane Rayich, and others who have been honored with this award. And that's Ravich, not Rayich, R-A-V-I-T-C-H. <laughs> so, Troy, with all of that, um, hey, it is thanks. such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's a it's an absolute delight to join you, gentlemen. Yes, and I'll I'll give a little bit of a backstory here because I first met Troy telephonically somewhere back in what 2012, 2013, oh, something think, like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, not long after Cyber Traps for the Young came out, and you right. were kind enough to help arrange a lecture with Nasdaq. Mm -hmm. I, actually, I think it was the PPI group. Um, about my work in that area. And you've been directly instrumental in getting me involved in the educational community. Yeah, so yeah. that is a perpetual thank you. But for the purposes of our conversation today, what we think would be really helpful is to educate people about the model code of ethics for educators. So I guess the initial question is, what is that? And how did it come about? Yeah, great, great question, and and a real nice baseline kind of a question. So the the model code for ethics, the model code of um, ethics for educators is 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 a is indeed a code of ethics. It's not a code of conduct, and I can I can talk more about that distinction a little bit later. But um, like like all professional codes of ethics, and by the way, most fiduciary professions have codes of ethics. And, and uh, for example, the American Medical Association, which is the oldest uh, professional organization in the country, developed a code of ethics in 1847. And the American Bar Association for Attorneys, as you know, Fred, um, was 1908. And so that even predated their code of conduct. They had a code of ethics. 
um, American Psychological Association, 1954, and American Counseling Association, 1961. And, and what's really interesting is those codes of ethics, um, some codes actually have um, uh, sanctionable absolutes that are built in for licensure purposes, um, but but really they're about navigating the murky terrain of their profession, whatever that might be, and and how to go about that doing that. And and so uh, and a code of ethics is it, it links together all past practitioners, current practitioners, and future practitioners with this a core set of, uh, of values that state this is what we do and this is how we operate. So what it's not is it, it's not um, uh, it, it's not an aspirational document saying we, we hope to someday um, value diversity and embrace um, whatever it might be, but it actually says we do it. And so it, it actually contributes to a standard of care that is that allows for defensible decision making, um, either collectively or individually. So how did all of this start? Well, it started because um, it, it really started the discussions towards the advancement of a, of a code of ethics for the profession actually started with an organization that you mentioned earlier, NASDAQ, the National Association of State Directors of Teacher Education and, and uh, Teacher Licensing and Education, and, and what's teacher certification and education. And what's really interesting is, is this organization goes back to 1928, um, and, and it's an organization that that really kind of coalesces state directors and jurisdictional direct directors um, of teacher license or educator licensing. And then if need be the sanctioning of licenses or action taken upon licenses because of missteps that a teacher might've taken misdeeds. And so there are two sides of the house, but as the organization started developing, um, they began to realize organizational members begin to have discussions um, about the whole notion that, you know, most states have codes of conduct um, uh, that apply to license, licensure actions and um, any kind of missteps that a, a, an educator might have taken in their career and their career path. And there are independent standards boards or boards of education that actually um, apply those sanctions when they see a misstep according to certain standards. So, for example, in Texas, the, the Texas Code of Educator Ethics has 30 standards, 28 of them say an educator shall not. So if they cross the line, um, be prepared for a possible sanction. So most states have something like that. But what they didn't have was this set of norms a common language which allows educators to sit and, and really have a discussion about in a certain situation, it's, it's the gray area. It's not crossing a red line, but it's this gray area where, where all educators find themselves all day long. Um, Charlotte Danielson, for example, who's an educational researcher, estimates that teachers, just teachers, um, in a in a in a teacher student contact day, they make three thousand non-trivial decisions over the course of a day, but most of those fall way short of the red line of misconduct. You see, and that's where professional ethics comes into play, and all the professions have that. So NASDAQ, through conversations at conferences, um, attorneys, investigators, educators, um, jurisdictional directors, we're all having these conversations, and NASDAQ finally decided we need to facilitate um, uh, a conversation about do we need to move forward and, and somehow facilitating 
this particular document, this code of ethics. And, and so they did. And so between 2012 and 2014, there were a number of symposiums, there were um, webinars, there were surveys done. And sure enough, overall, the profession in, in general came back and said, this is a huge gap. Something needs to be done. So what NASDAQ, NASDAQ did was they coalesced uh, a number of organizational partners. And what I mean with, by that would be the National Education Association, American Federation of Teachers. Um, at that time, it was called NCATE, which is the National Council for the um, uh, yeah, National Council for the Association of uh, I, I lost, excuse me, but anyway, it's NCATE and CAPE and all the other organizations that, that really undergird our profession came together and, and said, we buy into this. We love this concept. We needed it dramatically. And so we're going to nominate practitioners that are currently serving in the field to, um, to be a part of a task force to create the model code of ethics for educators. So it, it's, it's not top-down bureaucracy like other professions that have created codes of ethics, it's created by practitioners. So there were, there were paraprofessionals, teachers, principals, and superintendents that all fall under this notion of we as educators um, came together and created this document. And this document, and I've got a copy here that's all ripped up and it's got all kinds of markings on it. Um, it, it it's got five, the architecture is that it has five basic principles or categories and then there are um, 18 different subcategories. And then the meat of the code resides in the 86 standards. And not a single standard says do or don't do. It doesn't say an educator shall or an educator shall not. Rather, it holds dear what we believe and what we do. And if somebody is, is um, and so sometimes when we have these difficult decisions that we need to make, um, in, in over the course of a day, or even if it's something structurally in, in the system of education, we can sit back and, and ask some serious questions about how we should proceed. And so this will give us guidance, but more importantly, it gives us the language so we can contextualize our decisions, and that becomes a part of our standard of care. That's that's terrific stuff, so, Troy. That let me answer. let me jump. <laughs> no. Well, it it it's a deservedly long answer because it's been quite a process, and I do have a couple of follow up questions that relate to that. But I did want to drop this in, and we'll put it into the show notes that if people want to read the Model Code of Ethics for Educators, which I strongly urge them to do because it's fascinating, is to go to link.cybertraps.com backslash mcee. And that will take you directly to the document on the NASTEC website. And in addition to that, by the way, I should give a shout out to Troy about the fact that he has written several blogs for NASTEC that elaborate on a lot of these different issues and give some indication as to how the MCEE might be used within a school environment, which I think is really key. The great thing about this, and and I've been saying this, I'm in the middle of the Alaska ASTE conference right now. And, you know, the goal is to tell schools and educators that they can be proactive about this. They can use the MCEE to spark these discussions, even if it's not coming from the state level down to them. So I think that that's, that's terrific. Yeah, and can I even give a couple of examples, Fred, of, of how Please it can do. be used? And and I I, I think of um, several things. Um, 
Let me let me give three different examples. I actually did an efficacy research study, um, an, an efficacy, just a fancy word meaning does it really do what it's supposed to do? And so um, I, I did a multi-method study with an elementary school in Louisiana, and it was an amazing experience. And so I, I did the quantitative side, and then the qualitative side was um, two months after doing uh, a, a workshop in just the model code and all day workshop for teachers. Um, I went back and did interviews to find out what's really happening in those two months since I, since this happened. And what I discovered is um, the conversations that were being engendered were really quite profound. So teachers began to understand the risk of things that they had previously been doing, but they didn't understand the risk of that. And, and there are a couple of examples. So a kindergarten teacher said to me, she said, you know, I, I always have parents that, and, and the parent, her parents are young, you know, they're in their twenties or thirties. And they're a part of that digital native generation, Fred, that you speak about quite a bit, that notion that um, they have an expectation of their teachers to participate on social media or even live streaming from their classes if they can't be in the classroom and so on. And, and they didn't realize that this puts them at risk as an educator. And now, and even though that falls short of a policy, the, the code of ethics really encourages us to really examine the consequences of those kind of, um, those kind of communication platforms when working with, with teachers and why that might be. So again, it's not a policy directive. But it's it's a way to have those conversations. Um, also, the professional learning communities within that school, they found themselves changing their topics of discussion. So instead of um, talking about um, um, you know some of the, the the situational structural aspects of how first grade teachers should should operate with their students and and who's going to be in charge of recess, who's going to do that, they started examining really the the treatment of students and how we interact with parents and and what should we be cautious of those kind of things. There was even um, there was even an example where at this particular elementary school, like many elementary schools, they would have to raise fund, raise money. Um, so the booster or the, uh, the PTA would always have a, a silent auction every year. But as a part of that silent auction to raise money, and by the way, they would raise $30,000, $40,000 a year in this silent auction. But the biggest money raiser in the silent auction would, would be actually the teachers would put together a package of how to sell themselves, basically. So in other words, um, you know, we'll start the bidding at $100, but I will take your, your students out for um, dinner and a movie on a Saturday night, and, um, and then the bidding starts at 100 and next thing you know, it's at 250 it's at 500 it's at 700 Well, you can see the teachers now are now acclimated to this notion of ethics as risk. And how do we navigate the risk? And is there something kind of risky to me and to the students and the perception of, of a, a teacher and a student being in a car together and going to a movie together? And is that a professional norm that we really want to establish? Then there's also the notion of equity. What students and what parents are able to afford $800 for their for their student to go to um, to go to dinner and a movie with a, a, a teacher, and so all of a sudden they stopped in their tracks. They approach as a collective whole, not the administrator. The teachers went to the administrator and said, "You know what? 
based on what we know about ethics now, I'm we're, we're kind of concerned that this puts us at risk. And they actually use the model code to pull out standards to say, let's have a discussion over this with the PTA. And is there a different way we can do this and approach it? I think that's wonderful. Let me give you another example. I was doing a workshop in California and a, uh, a high school principal at a very large high school approached me afterwards and said, this is amazing because when I have, have seen teachers that are entering into what might be a compromising situation for them, I feel very uncomfortable approaching them because then it becomes a personal observation as opposed to we as a professional need to have this, as a profession, need to have a conversation. And so he said, now I have something in which I can pull out some standards and say, you know what, let's talk about this together in, in collaboration so that, um, because we need to think about the possible comp consequences and the implications of, of what's happening. And, and I don't want you to cross a red line and, and I don't want you to, to have any kind of, um, uh, any kind of career consequence. And so we can have this conversation. He said before, I only felt comfortable when they crossed a red line. Because otherwise, it becomes uh, a statement of personal values. I, Troy Hutchings, the administrator, believe that what you might be doing um, is, is jeopardizing you. But why? Well, it's not crossed a policy line. So why are you saying that? Is it because of your personal morality? See, there's really nothing to stand on. And as a profession now, we have something by which that gives us muscle to have conversations, not wagging fingers but working together to solve problems. And that's a key. Uh, yeah. Let me give you a third example that I was- Hold on, let me interrupt. On yeah, 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 go ahead, Jethro. This last example really hit home with me as a principal. I had many situations where I saw teachers making bad choices that I thought were bad and some eventually turned out to be proven to be bad while others eventually turned out to be no big deal. And I see the wisdom in being able to have a conversation about this that is not tied to the code of conduct, which, yeah. it, you know, you, you breezed by that earlier, but really that code of conduct is basically how you get people in trouble and threaten their license. That's what it comes yeah, down that, to. That's, yeah. And you go from zero to 60 in half a second when you bring that in. However, yeah. with the model code of ethics, as you just explained, you can start to have those conversations and say, help me figure out, you know, what's going on here and what your intention is, what your experience is, why you think this is um, a good thing to do. And then you can leave them to make that decision because it's not saying, you know, you shouldn't do this. It's saying this is how we believe we should act. And I think that's a really uh, poignant example of giving people permission to talk. The other thing that you alluded to is that as a principal, when you bring something up to a teacher, whether it's bad or not, it's going to be perceived as bad because you, the person in charge is saying, I need to talk to you about this. And so automatically that becomes a disciplinary conversation, even exactly. if you never intend it to be. Yeah. And, and, and Jethro, Jethro, think about when you were um, a school principal, that there's a power imbalance. There's a power absolutism that exists between you and your teachers or paraprofessionals or instructional assistants. And so it's a difficult thing. If you go in and start giving advice to a teacher, that really becomes a de facto mandate. And so they're, they're, what's, what the result of that is they're not going to come to you anymore. And so the, the decision-making becomes less transparent and more underground. 
And so yeah. that's a that's a major issue. But if you have something where it 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 sparks and engenders these conversations where we now have a language and we say, you know, there one of the things we need to really consider are these things. You know, and that's that's critical. I uh, another example, I I had a teacher approach me um and actually she she approached me after a workshop um and she said, I'm really in the middle of, of a difficult situation right now. And I wonder if I could get your help. And, and I had just done a, a workshop on the model code. And she said, I, I, I am an eighth grade English teacher. And um, we have this great, fantastic book that we are reading that I chose for them. And it's relevant to the kids' lives. It's culturally contextualized to um, their culture and where they're at. And it's wonderful. But there's some language in it. And so all of a sudden, one set of parents went kind of ballistic about the words that are in the book and started a bit of a coup against me, their teacher. And they went all the way to the school district, and I'm now under an investigation. And I said, how, what, what is your response? How, how do you defend? What, what's the defensibility of your choice? And she goes, you know, I, I just, I think it's a great book. And, and my professional judgment, it's a great book. And I said, but how are you linking back to the profession? And I said, what, what, what professional language do you have to, to, take it, to take it from this is what I believe to this is what we believe? And that is, that is the key. So I said, you know, you might want to consider the National Council um, for the Teachers of English have a set of guidelines regarding censored material and literature that might be controversial. And then you might want to go into the model code and find language that talks about the power of what you're, you're striving to do. And between those two documents, I think you might have a defensible, a defensible rationale. See, we as teachers will always say, well, I, I'm just doing it because I, I think it's right. That's not good enough. No other profession does it that way. They, 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 they can, they justify using a standard of care and that standard of care would be, Hey, policies, professional organizations, the norms of the profession and codes of ethics that clearly articulates. And so now we can stand strong and it's not just defending an action that we have taken, but, but I think about um, the political wins that administrators and teachers are now facing, whether the political wins are dealing with equity, equality, anti-discrimination, um, uh, even studying slavery in schools is now becoming this, this really hot topic. And, and there are four states right now that have bills up against that, teaching slavery as a core original sin of America. But do you know what? There's 11 standards in here that actually address equity, equality, and anti-discrimination, 11. And it says, we do this. We believe in this. All of a sudden, guess what? We now have a voice as educators. We now have agency to stand tall. And, and that's really critical. Um, so it's, it's, not, it's not just defending our personal actions, but rather it's saying, as a profession, we believe a certain a certain dynamic, a certain thing, a certain approach, and a, and we believe that equity is so important that dot dot dot. Right, right. Yeah. Well, let me let me let me tie that in a little bit to the 
the political reality, if you will. So I guess my first question looks back a little bit, right? You talked about how the uh, AMA got around to doing a code of ethics in 1847, the ABA, the American Bar Association, 1908. So my first question is, why do you think it has taken you know, the American education so long to come to this point. You know, that, that's a great, that's a yeah. great question. And, and my answer is not a research-based question. It's a Troy answer. So please keep that in mind as, as I go through this. Um, my, my thinking is that education has always been viewed as an extension of childcare. And, and, and that's, it's, and, and really, I, I think um, our associations and unions and the profession as a whole in different jurisdictions, a lot of movements kind of coalesced into elevating it into a profession. But as an extension of childcare, one could reasonably say, well, I, I'm a parent and I was never granted a code of conduct or a code of ethics, a manual to instruct me on how to do it. I just know better. And, and I think back to um, those of us that have studied the history or even taught the history of education, um, it's, it's kind of interesting because if we go all the way back to the 1840s and 50s, there was a, kind of the father of the public school movement. In those days, it was called the Common School, and it came out of Boston, Massachusetts, and, and it was Horace Mann who, who actually had a, a great quotation. He, he believed that women should be teachers. And, and not necessarily, or that teachers should be women, excuse me, that, um, and not necessarily for things like low pay, but rather, as he put it, um, and I'll, I'll use air quotes, as he put it, um, women were granted a disposition by their creator that men were not. And that disposition, of course, I think extends into that notion of childcare. Um, and so we've, we've always had that. Um, and, and so guess what's taught often at teacher ed programs would be the dispositions of being an educator, the ethos of compassion and care, the, the valuing diversity. Those are important and they're profound and they're needed, but that's not the legal ethical side of teaching. And likewise, we need to know where that red line is. We need to know the lowest standard of acceptable behavior as articulated through policy and statute. But we also need to know how to interact in that gray area before we get to the red line. And, and that would be this area that I believe is, um, is under the jurisdiction of professional ethics. Well, and I think that that I think that that is obviously a noble aspiration, right, in terms of providing these common values for educators to build on in terms of their day-to-day practice. So then the next question becomes, Troy, um, to uh, what's the mechanism since there's since education is inherently local, right? So what is the mechanism for getting the model code of ethics for educators broadly adopted? And yeah. in your work on that, have you run into resistance to the values that are embodied in the document? <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. There's never a resistance to the values or the language or the standards, but there's misunderstanding. And when there's misunderstanding, there's resistance. So, for example, if a, um, if a state or a jurisdiction has had a number of high-profile egregious cases where teachers have engaged in misconduct, it doesn't take much for a policymaker to say, 
you know what, this, this thing would be a great punitive document and let's use these 86 standards and hold them accountable. Or let's say that, and of course it's not meant for that. There's, there's no way it's not meant for that. And, and, uh, or let's say um, that um, um, if, if, and this is something that, that this is a very subtle nuance, but it's, it's important. And I'm sure Jethro, you'll, you'll catch this. If people um, start to articulate this, um, to policymakers as these are performance indicators, then all of a sudden they're used for evaluation, which has been done by jurisdictions. And when that happens, it sets off a tidal wave of opposition, op-eds in the newspapers, and so on and so forth. So a great deal of my work, and, and Fred, you've heard me speak a number of times, is really trying to state the case of what it is and what it is not and even changing the language. So for example, a number of states, guess what they, a number of states, most states have codes of conduct, but guess what many of the states call those codes of conduct? Codes of ethics. And so, oh, we, we don't need this because this we already have a code of ethics. Well, hold it. Those are two different documents. And so when I'm speaking, and, and by the way, I've, I've been to now 40 states in the last eight years talking about professional ethics or teacher sexual misconduct or the model code of ethics for educators. And I always have to start with this notion of here's what your state has and here's what it calls it. And, and, and here's the code of ethics and let's look at other, other professions and let's zero in. And then they go, Oh my gosh, in the absence of any kind of professional preparation and knowledge in this area, then we've defaulted to a false lexicon. And, and that false lexicon lead, could very well lead to resistance. That's very nuanced, but I hope you, I hope that kind of makes sense. Um, because we're starting so late in the game, then that means there are these institutional lexiconal terms that are already in place, right? And, 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 and some of those go back decades and decades and decades and decades, and they've been um, ingratiated into the fabric of the preparation programs or into the profession um, writ large. So that, that is, that is a challenge. Um, I don't think that's a resistance. It's a challenge. Um, once I have found that, um, unions and professional organizations are totally behind it because it's about protecting the profession and protecting the practitioner, whereas codes of ethics or codes of conduct are really about protecting society and protecting those the, the assets that society gives to the practitioner, in this case, children. So this is about protecting the profession, protecting the practitioner. And if that goes well, guess who the residual is that it, it further protects students and society as well. Um, yeah. And yeah. So Troy, I think this is a really fascinating, it's a small distinction, but I think it's really important because what the code of ethics, the model code of ethics does is it, empowers people to have conversations and make good decisions. What a code of conduct does is it scares people or forces people into compliance. And so it's, I I find it a little bit surprising that educators who are educated in general um, can get those two ideas uh, confused and that, and yet it makes total sense, you know, that a district would say, Oh, look, it says in here that they should um, that the professional educator respects rights and dignities of students by uh, considering the implication of accepting gifts or giving gifts to students. Okay, therefore, you're not allowed to give or receive gifts from students. And it's easy 
for policymakers, especially to make that jump and to say, we need a, a hard, fast line in, uh, line in the concrete that says you don't ever cross over this line. And it's easy to fall into that trap, but that's not necessarily the case in some situations. Um, you know, if you took that differently <laughs> and uh, you say, consider the implication of accepting gifts, if you don't accept an, a gift in a certain culture, which we also yeah. should be yeah. culturally aware, yeah. then you're being offensive and rude and losing trust that you have worked so hard to build. And yeah. so it's important to recognize that and and pay attention to those things. And in, in my school here, it may be appropriate to receive a gift. In this school yeah. over here, it may not be appropriate to receive yeah. a gift. But this allows for both of those interpretations to take into uh, consideration the context of what they're dealing with, well, that, which I think is so important. Jethro, you, you bring up something that's, that's really um, important, and that is co- codes of conduct um, – would be standardized behavior. Codes of ethics are contextualized. So, um, so what might be most appropriate in a situation for um, um, performance art teachers may be different or physical educators who are in a lab setting might be completely different than English teachers, even though they're at that same school. So we can have contextualized discussions um, and come up with a collective decision and a reason for doing things as opposed to um, waiting for the policy hatchet to drop. And, and, and Jethro, I, I think as an as a administrator, you know that what we tend to do is we over-policyize. And that, I just made up that word, so maybe there's no such word. But we tend to over-policyize in our profession it's because we've never, we've never had, um, a, um, we've never tolerated ambiguity. And so we over policy I. So all of a sudden, when there is a, um, and it could, it's usually an out, an outlier situation. So when there is a sexual misconduct case that hits, um, hits in a district and it's a small district and, and it, it, it everyone, there's a devastation that occurs, um, emotionally and, and so on and so forth. You can be sure that there'll be a new policy the next year. And that new policy might be something like, um, uh, and, and I've, and these are some examples of that, that I'm going to pull out from other districts that I've seen. Um, teachers are not able to touch students, um, unless they're fourth grade or below anybody above that. You can't, well, in any, any educator will tell you that's not feasible. And so, you know, what that policy does is it pushes decision-making even farther underground. And, and Jethro as an administrator, and if I were a teacher, I would never come to you then. And, 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 and 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 talk about I've got this kid that um, is in my class and his 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 mother and father um, uh, were undocumented and they just got arrested last night and he's all alone and I hugged him I would never tell you that ever because you see that's a new policy and so what the 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 danger of over policyizing is that we're we're taking the agency we're stripping agency away from professional practitioners. And putting it in the hands of you will face punishment, and those are we're, we're, that's wrong. That's, that's absolutely yeah. wrong. Yeah, Troy, let me jump in here because I I sure. think that what you're talking about has had a real impact on the work that I do, and I think that there's a great example that we can discuss briefly, which is that when I first got started on this journey with you, right, and mm-hmm. going from cyber traps for the young 
to cyber traps for educators in 2015. You recall we had conversations yeah. about the use of social media and early on my my approach was very much closer to a code of conduct, right? That yeah, right, right, right. That teachers will not end of sentence use social <laughs> media to yeah. con- contact students because yeah. the the slope seems so slippery. And over time, and in part because of my uh, interaction with you on the model code and so forth, it's become clear that the better approach, the more nuanced approach, is to figure out whether there are tools that can allow the use of social media yeah. in ways that promote student safety and you know better interaction between students and teachers and so forth. So yeah. then we get into this idea of, of folding in concepts of transparency and accountability without drafting a red line that yeah. says you will never do this because it didn't make sense. The other thing I'd love to have you talk about, because I think it, it's such a, a distilling example is the idea of the student in the car, right? And we, this is one of your favorite examples that I've heard mm. you talk about many times that some districts will have a bright red line that says a teacher will not be in a car with a student unaccompanied. And then the situation arises that coming back from a sports trip, the child can't get in touch with his or her parents and it's two in the morning and it's a high school parking lot. And what do you do? It, either it's, it's a little risky or it's, it's really cold and the, yeah. the teacher is there and, and yeah. the code of ethics is a tool for conversing about competing values ahead of time. Yeah, and 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 the reason I like that example, um, it, it actually came to my attention um, from an educator. I was doing a workshop in Mississippi um, for high school educators, and and one one educator actually in in a group of two hundred people, he stood up and and he actually said, "I I have a confession. I have broken school policy dozens, if not hundreds, of times." And of course, everyone just kind of stares at him. And, and he said, and I bet you have as well. And he said, I'm also a coach and I live in a rural part of Mississippi. And um, uh, and, and that is exactly what happened, the, the situation that you gave. And he said, for, and this is what he said. He said, for seven years, I always gave that, that student a ride home at midnight or 11 o'clock or two in the morning or whatever it might be, because there's no taxi cabs, there's no Ubers out there. Um, and, and even if I did that, um, it's still my supervisory liability. So all of a sudden that extends the liability because I called the taxi, I called the Uber. So all of a sudden now we have all these competing tensions that we've never thought about. And he said, so I would always put the student in the car, drop her off. And he said, but the next, the next morning and, and Jethro, you're going to love this. He said the next morning, I would always walk in the back door of the high school because if I walked in the front door, I'd have to pass the principal's office. And, and I knew that I had broke policy at midnight last night with a student and I didn't know what else to do. And I wasn't going to tell the principal I did this because I could have a sanction against my employment at the very least a letter of reprimand. And, and I didn't want that happening. And he said for seven years, I'd, you know, he's telling everybody this and everyone's kind of nodding. And all of a sudden, just by generating the conversation, people are going, well, yeah, what did you do? What did you do? How did you solve that situation? Because I want to know because I've been in the same situation. And he said, so I realized I wasn't the only coach at the school. And so after seven years, I, I whispered to a friend of mine who's a coach, have you ever been in this situation? And he said, well, 
yeah, have you? And he said, of course, dozens of times. And he said, well, let's ask around. Of course, all the coaches said yes, but none of the coaches admitted to it because it broke policy. And so what they did was they sat down and discussed, okay, how can we be preemptive? Knowing the, knowing the, the, the intricacies of our discipline coaching, knowing the community, the cultural context of the community, they came up with a plan and they, they ran it by the athletic director who ran it by the principal. And they said, this is fantastic. But all it took was an honest, transparent conversation. And now they, it, it mitigated the risk for everybody and we're not breaking policy. Now, by the way, the model code of ethics for educators has a number of standards about student safety and welfare. It has a number of standards also about policy. It also has standards about, it has one standard that says, if, if you feel like there is a policy or a mandate from your organization that, is in, in, uh, that inhibits you from following, making ethical decisions, you have an obligation to step forward and say something about it. And so in other words, it gives educators total agency. Um, and that's really critical. So there's a, you know, that kind of tags onto that example and why that's so important. But, but now imagine, you know, the, the risk of, I don't know if that student has a crush on me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, and, and so when I give the student a ride home, what's going to pop up on the, uh, on the viral feeds the next day. I don't know if that student has a crush on me and then takes a picture of me in the car with her and says, look who I'm with at 12 o'clock at night at midnight. Boom. Can you imagine the rumor and innuendo? I'd come to school the next day and I'd be put on, I'd be put on suspension, a paid suspension while an investigation is done. And I would have no idea what I did wrong other than I broke policy. So all of a sudden you see all of those kind of things. When we start asking the what if questions, then all of a sudden we can go into the code and come up with additional ways to look at it and examine it. Again, it doesn't tell us what to do. It'll never say, don't give a kid a ride home. It doesn't say that in here, but it gives us new a new framework by which to examine the everyday problems and complexities that all teachers have. So I want to address that ambiguity a little bit because I think that piece really uh, has a big impact on teachers. So in, in my schools, our school rules when I went to a new school, our school rules became uh, be safe, be kind, be responsible, or be safe, be respectful, be responsible. You know, we, we discussed as a faculty, but to me, those were the only rules that mattered. And the challenge for educators is that they want something that says you can do this, you can't do that. And these ethical considerations are sometimes challenging because they're not black and white. And so they have, a. so my teachers in all my schools had a real challenge with that, be safe, be respectful, be responsible, because they said, what if a kid is running in the hall? Are they allowed to run in the hall now? Is that what you're saying? And I said, well, is running in the hall safe? Is it respectful? Um, Is it responsible? No, it's none of those things. So of course, running in the halls is not okay. And it, you don't have to have a rule that says running in the halls is not okay because we have the rules that say you need to be safe, be respectful, be responsible. And it seems like that's what the model code of ethics for educators is trying to get at that. There are, you know, there are times when it's okay to run in the hall. Like if somebody is hurt and you're running to get them to safety or running to get someone, yes, you should, because that is the safe and respectful and responsible thing to do in that context. But it's hard because teachers like things to be black and white, very clear, yes or no. 
how how do you manage that and and make it so that they can come come to grips with that aspect of it yeah that's that's a real that's a really good point and and something like this see takes it takes it away and, and it becomes a safe way to have the discussion instead of a threatening way to have the discussion and and I and I think about an example that um, I was told by a uh, a superintendent once where he said, we, we had a concern. Uh, he, he said a principal of a high school received a concern that uh, a teacher was making contact with a student at, on Saturday evening, you know, on the phone. So the principal just marched in on Monday, again, over policyized, marched in on Monday and said, there is no excuse for ever contacting students after, you know, um, after the school day ends, that it ends just with that. And I can see about a third of the high school teachers looking at the ground going, huh, I, we have Saturday bake sales to raise money for the band. We, we have um, 150 people on the track team, and we have to be able to make sure that we're coordinated. So it's, it's, not, to, it's, it's not saying it's, the action is right or wrong. That's what we should be doing. We, we need to eliminate that language and say, okay, so... I, I can see why parents would be concerned if I called up at, at on a Saturday evening, but how many of us have to do that? And and so we all raise our hands, but if you come marching in and say, don't do, everyone's going to look down. They're still going to do it, but there's not going to ever approach the principal ever again. So now we have the ability to say, okay, we all have to do this in our context as coaches, as student government teachers, as fact, as sponsors, um, as the prom sponsor, how do I work with all the students to put together the prom and not make contact? Well, no, let's, we're going to have to make contact. So how can we do it so that it's, it's appropriate for everybody and there are no misperceptions of anything bad happening. So again, it's, it's think, all about the conversation. Right. I think Jethro's point is really, really well taken though, because you know, the, 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 there's a huge upside to the MCEE providing agency to educators, right? Yeah. But to the extent that it is context-driven, it it also heightens, I would suspect, the number of those decisions that you were talking about earlier that an educator needs to make. Um, because one of the benefits of rules, and, and we we debate this all the time in terms of living in a free society or a fascistic society, right? A fascistic society is easier in some ways because the decisions have all been made for you. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you're talking about increased agency, there's also increased responsibility in how there you is. approach different situations. So it's it's a challenge. And I think it only really works if there's widespread buy-in and education of the people involved as to how to make this efficacious and efficient within a school community. Yeah. And and that's really an interesting point. Um, It really does come down to um, weaving professional ethics into our profession. And, and how do we do that? Well, we need to start at the, the, the practitioner or the pre-service level. We need to, how can we weave it into licensure requirements? How can we weave it into continued, continued licensure, not continued licensure requirements, but rather in-service professional learning? Um, how do we make that happen so it becomes part of the fabric and the DNA of our profession? One of the interesting things when I did that efficacy study in uh, Louisiana, what I found was the more they use the model code, the less they use the model code. 
and and because it just became the discussions were actually more important than the actual standards. The standards gave them the freedom to have the discussions, and then if they needed to go back and check it, they could to make sure that you know there was kind of an alignment and defensibility to what we're doing. But the discussions were everything. I I, I was talking to an attorney in um, um, in Pennsylvania recently, and I said, "Hey, when was the last time you looked at um, the ABA, American Bar Association Code of Professional Responsibility?" Right? And he goes, "Oh." probably 10 years ago <laughs> when I first got out of law school. And I said, why? He goes, because we have these discussions all the time in, in our firm and with our, with our attorneys and paralegals. And, and, and I think back and also um, uh, Fred, you know, my, um, my youngest daughter is finishing her last semester of law school. Right. And, and she said, what do you mean, dad, that none of no teachers and administrators don't have a thorough knowledge of professional ethics, as well as the regulations and statutes that govern their profession. I said, they don't. She said, dad, in my very first class, it started, it was woven into that. And she said, and before I even take the bar, I have to pass the, the ethics exam, which is like three hours long. And in a lot of that are case-based scenarios that talk about the ambiguity of situations rather than laying down a policy. I'll so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, so, so all of that, um, see other professions have been doing that for a long time, um, but we haven't. And until we start in- incorporating it, um, it, 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 we're going to have these roadblocks as a profession. Now, now, by the way, I, I would also like to mention, I didn't really answer a question that you asked earlier, Fred, and that's, so what's happening with the rollout or what's really happening? And I, and I gave challenges um, as opposed to some of the successes. Well, there are um, a number of states that have um, adopted the model code of ethics for educators. And, but remember, we would, because as you said earlier, um, it, it's not a fair analogy to say the APA or the ABA or the AMA, because you see, that's an umbrella organization. In, in, in education, we have all these different state jurisdictions, and then we have sub jurisdictions within that. We have counties, and then we have regional service centers, and then we have districts. And within that, it might have to, you know, for some some places like in Nevada, it had to actually um, become a bill AB 124, and and so then it had to go through that process. In other states, it can be done through it can be done through the um, the Independent Standards Board, like in North Dakota, or in other states like Hawaii, where it was. Um, the, the, the school, Hawaii is wonderful because it's one big school district, right? So the state department of education is also the school district. So the, the independent standards board worked in conjunction with the teachers association, um, Hawaii state teachers association with the, the department of education. And they worked together for years to, to bring it to fruition. So now they've got, it's, it's being, um, it's being taught uh, in conjunction with professional ethics at the pre-service level, the in-service level. Everybody buys into it, but it really depends on the jurisdiction and how those jurisdictions choose to do it. So I, I will be honest, um, five years ago when this came out, I was all about adopt, 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 and I'm not anymore. I'm about implement, implement, implement. Because it, adoption's not the point. Because so many people will say, look, we've adopted um, now what, <laughs> you know, and, and well, that's the, that's the important piece is the now what otherwise, and, and Jethro, you know, this education is filled with pithy documents and pithy little things that just sit on a rack someplace. This is not about that. This is about a framework by which we view our profession 
it's not something that we have to do on top of what we do. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And the implementation piece is is something that we we often don't look at. You know, every school improvement plan I've ever worked on, every accreditation thing I've ever done has always gone on the shelf and we've never looked at it again. And you, one thing that I'm regretting as we're talking is that I didn't spend more time on the philosophical conversation about our school rules of be safe, be kind, be respectful, because had I done that, it would have... I think solved a lot of problems that people faced and a lot of teachers just could not with me saying, here are the rules, these three things, they couldn't handle that just being the rule. They needed the conversation. I think I did them a disservice by not having that conversation about what that meant as much and as often as I probably should have. And that would have saved, I would have been a better principal. Well, it's dang. Well, education is a very nuanced profession. Um, and, and ambiguity is rife throughout the day. Um, and, and policies fall short because they're not about ambiguity. They're not about decision-making. They're about an ultimate line. Um, Fred, you, you know, you've heard me say this a dozen times, if not a hundred times that, that, that even if we talk about an egregious act, uh, uh, an act of misconduct, um, misconduct is not an event. It's a process. And much of that process occurs in the everyday nuanced, complex decision-making. And all of a sudden, and, and all of those gray steps might look fantastic to everybody, but all of a sudden we have no idea what the consequences there, there are unintended consequences to everything. And so that's where something like this and uh, uh, starts the conversation. So we can go, Ooh, I never thought about if that, if I give a ride home and that girl has a crush on me, I've never put myself in her position. I'm always viewing it from my position and, and my wife is going to be mad at me if I have to sit at the school for another two hours. I've never thought about the, the development level of this 15 year old person and, and how she might perceive this action. You know, all of a sudden it just, it's, it's a game changer. It's just a game changer. Absolutely. And, and I think honestly, in, in probably the, the first interaction we had, I still remember to this day, the introduction of this concept of the slippery slope right. that you were using with respect to this process that you're talking about, yeah. that, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's not like you step off a cliff. Yeah. And there's action and consequence yeah. and you're done. Yeah. Oftentimes it's many small steps that build up speed yeah. and tumble you down that slope. And, you know, technology, of course, is such a brilliant example because how often have we talked about cases where an educator begins a one-on-one conversation with a student using an electron- electronic tool, whether it's Snapchat or text messaging or what have you, and the initial interactions are innocuous, but yeah, absolutely. But and, there's and, a context, and then it, and then it accelerates. Yeah, and one of the things um, that I, I certainly talk about in my work a great deal, and I, I took this concept from Bazerman and Ten Brunzel, who are both um, business ethicists at Harvard. They they believe that we fail to recognize the ethical dilemmas when they're present, and it creates blind spots. And and I would say in our profession, um, and and and. Our profession, our greatest blind spot is how much we care. Um, the the ethos of care and compassion will will always put me in a position where I'm 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 making. And by the way, we don't want to eliminate that. We want to have that. We want to encourage and cultivate that. 
but we also want to be able to um, leaven that with knowledge of, of professional ethics and the ambiguities and the consequences and the risk and all of those kind of things as well. So if you even if you look at something like teacher sexual misconduct, um, if you start looking at all the different cases, so many of those start because a, a student approaches a teacher and says, man, I really need help in my personal life. And, and all of a sudden that leads and that puts a teacher in a position in which um, it expands their role. And so it becomes teacher, not just an English teacher or a coach, but teacher as counselor. I'm not prepared as a counselor, teacher as savior, teacher as surrogate parent. All of those kind of things are wrapped up. And that is a landmine. That is a field of murky terrain that's got all kinds of landmines in it. And, and, and often when a teacher has personal trigger points in their own personal lives as well, it, it's easy to see how that happens. All of that takes place in the gray. And, and all of that until a line is crossed is in the gray, and that's professional ethics. So how do we communicate with those kids? How far do we expand our role beyond just being a teacher? Do you realize there are standards that deal with those very things in here? And, and they don't say to do it or not, but they give us the language to have the discussion so we can decide together what to do with that. Well, from a technology point of view, and, and we've certainly talked about this as well, the one thing I would leave people as we come to the end of this is that one of the values of something like the MCEE is to provide discussion that lets you slow down the process yeah, of these yeah. interactions that yeah. time and time again, it is the speed with which the communication takes place and the exchange and the interaction yeah. um, that that facilitates the problem. And the yeah. one other thing, and again, we've mentioned this as well, is that um, if you looked at my research files for cyber traps for educators, you would see that the phrase teacher of the year is oh, disproportionately yeah, present because yeah. the very qualities that make someone such a phenomenal teacher also can make them more vulnerable to these kinds of situations. Well, and, and just think what we do, though, in our profession, we throw accelerant on that slippery slope all the time by, hey, be a mentor for this student. But we don't discuss how to be a mentor for the student. And yet there are standards in here that 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 say, think about this. We don't we never even discuss um, when should I be a mentor? How should I be a mentor? What hour should I be a mentor? What communication platform should I use to mentor? Am I mentoring only in English or their personal lives? Well, if it's a personal lives, I'm not sure that I'm actually prepared, adequately prepared to do that. There's a standard that talks about that in here. So all of those kind of things tap into what we can do to protect ourselves, protect students, protect the profession as a whole um, without having the ugliness of over-policyizing. That's a great summation, Troy. Well done. Um, I would like to thank you so much yeah, for absolutely. being part of this conversation. Yes. It's really been fascinating. And and beyond that, for all of the work that you've done on the code, which is just such a gift to the profession as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being here. Best wishes Excellent. and have a great day. Great. Well, Thank we'll you. take it out. Hold on one sec. We uh, wrap up with Mr. Troy Hutchings this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, today's topic, ethics and cyber ethics privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts 
who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps, and we hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this conversation, which I sure did. Please leave a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. We appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to having you on the next episode of Cybertraps, which is this Thursday with RJ Rodriguez, where we're going to continue discussing um, the Mala Code of Ethics and how it's being implemented in Hawaii.